Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 19, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. With the scourge of violence perpetrating on more fronts than the mind can process, it is a bomb to turn to Bonnie Carroll, founder and president of Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, also known as TAPS. In the second half of the show, Orange County Registrar Voters Neil Kelly will speak to the irregularities that occurred during our recent primary, the irregulars and the complexities here in California and in around in Orange County, no less. All votes matter. Let's all make sure that is resolved. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, all. My first guest is Bonnie Carroll, founder and president of the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, TAPS, providing compassionate care for those grieving a death in the armed forces, serving more than 60,000 survivors with round-the-clock support services and programs. Ms. Carroll founded TAPS in 1994, following the death of her husband, Brigadier General Tom Carroll, uh, that was in an Army aviation crash in 1992. Ms. Carroll retired after over 30 years of service in the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve. In her professional career, she worked as a defense consultant on Capitol Hill, a senior appointee in the Reagan and both Bush administrations, deputy senior advisor to the Ministry of Communications in Baghdad, Iraq, and currently serves on the defense Health Board. She was the 2015 recipient of the Association of Death Education and Counseling Clinical Practice Award and the 2015 Zachary and Elizabeth Fisher Distinguished Civilian Humanitarian Award for her work to support the armed forces and surviving military families. She is the co-author of the book Healing Your Grieving Military Heart and numerous articles on coping with traumatic grief. Ms. Carroll completed degrees in public administration political science from the universe from American University and international conflict resolution from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. She comes to us today from Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bonnie Carroll. Oh, Claudia, thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's, it's really an honor to be here, and I look forward to speaking with you. Well, the the honor is not symmetrical. I really, I bow to all that you have been doing for helping so many in need of healing. This program has benefited immeasurably by the remarkable volunteers who work for you. It is such an honor to have you as today's guest to speak about sudden traumatic loss, grief, and support for the families and loved ones left behind. As with each interview I conduct with TAPS affiliates, I'd like for you, Bonnie Carroll, to give you an opportunity to introduce and talk about your husband, whom you survived, Tom Carroll. Talk about him to our listeners, for those of us who are unfamiliar with your story, which you've presented in so many different ways. Oh, thank you so much, Claudia. Uh, my husband was an absolutely extraordinary leader. He was the, uh, the son of Alaska's first adjutant general, and very tragically, his father was killed in an Army uh, plane crash oh up there God. in the mountains of Alaska when Tom was just a teenager. So uh, immediately after graduating from high school, Tom enlisted in the Army and uh, headed off on, on a career that uh, took him at a very young age uh, back to Alaska and uh, following in his father's footsteps, he became the Assistant Adjutant General of the Alaska Army National Guard. And uh, that year that he was promoted to Brigadier General in the Army, he was the uh, Army's youngest at 42. So he had an extraordinary career and very tragically was killed uh, up in Alaska in an Army 
C-12 crash, as you mentioned, with eight soldiers on board. It was the entire senior leadership of the Alaska Army Guard, and it was just, it was absolutely devastating uh, for the military in Alaska, and, and absolutely, it was uh, just completely brought uh, my life to a halt. Where were you when this occurred? Well, I had just actually uh, seen him off that morning. We'd had a dinner party for the, the whole group. Uh, there was a visiting two-star general. They were flying around to see different units in Alaska. As you know, uh, aviation is the primary mode of transportation to the mm-hmm. remote villages of Alaska. So uh, they, were, they were headed out again to, uh, to go down to southeast Alaska and very tragically uh, ran into bad weather and complications and went down in the mountains there, killing everybody on board. Well, as I mentioned, your story's been presented in various ways. There was a feature film that uh, Drew Barrymore played you, and um, this, I I just sort of marvel, um, I saw parts of it and read some reviews about um, your reactions to the film. I think it's uncanny when a film doesn't touch what really happened, it, I mean, it was, it was somewhat fair to your story, but there were parts in the nonfiction that didn't make it into the fiction, which maybe would have made it for even a better film. Oh, Claudia, thank you. You're, the film you're referring to is uh, Big Miracle. Yes. It was a 2012 film about the whale rescue up in Barrow, Alaska, back in 1988. And that actually is how Tom and I met. I was working in the West Wing of the White House for Ronald Reagan, and uh, that, that whale rescue just captured the world's attention. And uh, Tom was up there leading the effort. But he was a, you know, he was a really big thinker. He pulled together the, uh, the Alaskan Eskimos, Greenpeace, who were doing environmental work, the oil companies, the military, and, and ultimately brought uh, uh, the White House into it and uh, the Soviets. So it was quite a story, and Big Miracle is, is a wonderful film. It, uh, it actually ends with our wedding, so that was, uh, that was very special. And what B- Big Miracle did was fictionalized his uh, own support of bringing the Soviet Union into this rescue effort. That, he really, your husband, was interested in that effort, and so that sort of, like, what an opportunity lost to, to show what a big thinker he really was. Yes, and actually, it, it's portrayed a little differently in the film. But yeah. in in reality, he had called me in the in the West Wing of the White House to ask if uh, President Reagan could reach out to Mikhail Gorbachev and engage the Soviet icebreakers, and and they did. And he actually flew an army helicopter out to the Soviet icebreaker and stood side by side with the Soviet captain as they entered U.S. waters. It was quite historic. Wow! Wow! Well, I want to give you a chance here to talk about your groundbreaking work. You created this TAPS from whole cloth yourself. Tell us about how you brought your grief into a purposeful undertaking as in establishing Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Well, Claudia, at the time that Tom was killed, I I was very familiar with the other types of organizations that exist for loss in our society. There was a wonderful group uh, that I was actually uh, proud to be on the board of there in Anchorage called Victims for Justice, working with families of homicide loss. There was another group, Concerns of Police Survivors. So I knew these organizations existed and were tremendously helpful. So when Tom was killed and we suffered that uh, devastating loss, I went looking for the kind of organization I knew must exist for the military, but found that while there were associations like Old Star Wives and Society of Military Widows who do wonderful work protecting the benefits for surviving spouses. There was no organization focused on the grief and trauma of a military loss. So we benchmarked best practices, did very careful needs assessment and gap analysis, and out of that two-year search and discovery created what is today the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. So your career in logistics of many kinds in the White House and in the military melded with your knowledge, your literacy of those organizations out there that helped the bereaved. You could put that together. It's, a, it's an amazing skill set that uh, to get this up and running while grieving. 
Oh, gosh, honey, you know, you touched on a, on a very good point, and I thought, I, I actually thought a lot about that. Being a military officer myself, the fact that Tom had become a general officer, the fact that it was a high-profile military uh, yes. mass casualty, you know, I thought we, I had the platform and the network to create an organization and really wanted to, despite the, the disabling grief I was feeling, make sure that that was in place for others yet to come. So the, the stock and trade here, the, the special part of TAPS is the peer connection to assist survivors. How did you find the essential peers to support and help you in the, in the 19, early 1990s? Well, we were actually, in an odd way, fortunate that there were eight killed in that crash. Uh, four of us became incredibly close and really found there was a magic in just connecting and sharing honestly and without judgment. And, uh, you know, grief is not a mental illness. Grief is, is not a physical injury. I wish we could take a pill or put a bandage over it, but it is a broken heart. You know, grief is the price that we pay for love, and, and one of the strongest remedies is being with another who truly understands and, and really can so. be with you and companion you through that very difficult period. Did any of those four with whom you became very close also help establish TAPS? Oh, you know, I actually, I, I was just talked with... Huh. Um, with Ida, one of the other widows, uh, yesterday. We, we remain very close. Um, I think they all have, have kind of done their own, own things in life, um, but have certainly been supportive and involved. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Bonnie Carroll. She's the founder and the, the president of TAPS, and she is the 2015 recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom taking up the topic of surviving the traumatic death of a loved one in the military, and we're going to relate it to the extent we can to the general public's grief over so much violence that's been perpetrated recently. So um, when a whole nation grieves the loss of so many on so fronts, how is, is TAPS able to, to offer some kind of support or resources? I mean, your resources are spread thin, but is there, is there sort of a generic TAPS tool that you find is easily disseminated in times like these? Oh, there is. And we, we actually um, do publish just tips on grieving. The book that we have um, on coping with, uh, with grief has just 100 practical ideas, and they're, they're really for anybody things that you can do, actions you can take, ways you can, can help resolve the feelings that you're having. So um, there is an awful lot that we can offer. Our website is taps.org. Our 24-7 helpline is 800-959-TAPS. And uh, while our focus is military loss, we welcome all those who call and help get them the, the support that they need and the connections and resources that will be the most healing for them. I'm sure, not in the back of your mind, but near the front, is helping maybe a non-military family is still getting the resource out, and military families will benefit at, with the sort of networking webbing that takes place. Absolutely. Okay. Well, in your own words, where you've uh, worked beautifully with a, a psychotherapist whose name now, right, a, a moment escapes me, that he, uh, your collaborator in healing your grieving military heart. In your own words, you counsel that, and I'm going to quote you, accepting the reality of sudden and violent deaths usually takes longer. Is it even more complicated when the deaths are as high, ho high profile as these recent traumatic deaths are? It is. That, that's an additional complicating factor, and it, and it you know, for the family, the loss is very, very personal. But when a nation is, is grieving with you, I think it adds another, another element to your journey. So the immediate and the long-term effects that grief and bereavement have on individuals and families render uh, complexity to survival. So that's what uh, the, the beauty of the peer survivor counsel, uh, it's not counseling, but the survivor reaching out. Can you talk a little bit about what's sort of how this, uh, you move from immediate to long-term kind of intervention? 
Well, you know, many people think that, that grief is just a steady line and a progression, that there are stages. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did work um, many about 30, 30 years ago on hospice and came up with those stages we hear so often uh, misplaced on grief, but it was actually on reconciling one's own terminal condition, the anger, depression, denial, bargaining. Those really aren't appropriate for people who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Rather, there are maybe four what we call tasks of grief that Dr. Bill Warden uh, coined so well. And the first is just acknowledging that, that the death has occurred. It sounds simple enough. Certainly on the day that, that my husband's plane crash occurred, I could make phone calls and tell people what had happened. But I would say it was probably six months, eight months later that it really hit home that I would never see him again. So I think that's just the first phase. And then the second task is then to mourn the loss. And many often, uh, many times we see people at that six to eight month point really feeling the impact of the grief. And that's something that, you know, may help understand, may help you understand just what's happening in your own journey or help you understand those who you care about who are grieving a loss. And then it's redefining your life and adjusting to the physical environment in which your loved one is no longer present. And then it's reinvesting energy. How are we going to redefine our relationship with our loved one? Because they will always be in our life. So um, those are ways that, that we find our our path forward. And in that fourth step, your affiliates with whom I've had the pleasure and honor, as I've said before, of interviewing, they talk about the the emphasis, it must be tilted away from the last, the, 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 the morbid, the, the, the death aspect of the person that for the person to survive that loved one, they need to focus on the, the lively aspects and that encourage their circle, uh, their network to help them look at the life aspect for uh, addressing what could otherwise sort of deepen into a post-traumatic stress disorder. Absolutely, Claudia. That's that's the focus of TAPS, is remembering the life lived. That brief moment, the moment of the death, doesn't define the years of the life. And if we can shift that paradigm, I think that's tremendously healing. I was also struck, I don't think I've seen this before in, in preparing for the other uh, speakers, that you also mentioned an adage, quote, that grief rewrites your address book, end of quote. So... The social debt gets shuffled, so some some assume the job description of attending to survivors, and some move on without any ideas as to what role they might offer. That's something you probably experienced a great deal, and that's why you could say that. Oh, I think I think we all do, and it, it's surprising the people who do step forward, who maybe have an understanding, who have had losses themselves, and then it's it's tough. Folks who drift away, life is going in a different direction, or or they're uncomfortable with with the grief and, and the experience and the heartache. So it, it does really change. And you find that through TAPS, we have families who meet and become lifelong best friends, uh, and it, it creates a whole new community that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Because they get it, like nobody else. They get else. it, they yeah. And I, you mentioned uh, the website for folks who want to get their own copy of Healing Your Grieving Heart After Military Death, 100 Practical Ideas for Families and Friends, That's uh, you can go to info at taps.org and you can get a copy, make a contribution, keep this organization lively, uh, vibrant. As it is. So, well, when you were talking about, I actually I'm hopping back to those four tasks, the third task of redefining life and adjusting and all, that was, those sound like, somebody starting an organization called TAPS. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is um, It's giving meaning and purpose, not just to the death, but to the life lived. Yes. So, uh, Bonnie Carroll, tell me us about, does TAPS extend its services to law enforcement families? I'm thinking certainly of Dallas and Baton Rouge police forces right now. We work very closely with our sister organization, the Concerns of Police Survivors, 
uh, COPS, that's their acronym, is just a few years older than TAPS, and their founder, Susie Sawyer, was wonderfully helpful when uh, TAPS was getting up and running. So uh, we have a great long-standing relationship as a service organization for those grieving the loss of a, of a uniformed uh, member of, of our society who is uh, defending us. Okay. Well, along with some very trying developments, we learned some things that many did not know about the decisions leading to the 2003 evasion, invasion of Iraq from the Iraq inquiry issued by its chairman, Sir John Chilcutt. Uh, British families were very outspoken about what former British Prime Minister Tony Blair had to say. How does TAP work with survivors with these kind of public displays? Gosh, I'm so glad you asked that. We have a wonderful partnership with the British, our British counterpart, uh, Soldiers, Sailors, Airmen, and Families Association has a bereaved family support program. And every year we go over to England in November, which is their Remembrance Week, and then they come here to the U.S. for our Memorial Day. And we have an opportunity to come together to honor our fallen heroes and to talk about some of these tough issues and, and find a common ground where we are focused not on the politics or the, or the death or the violence, per se, but on the lives lived and these extraordinary service members. Okay. So were there any special huddles? that it, Maybe they were there in the, the United Kingdom, but were there any huddles that were forming around uh, after that Chilcot disclosure? To sort of, I mean, I can imagine some scabs were peeled off with, with the revelations of sort there. Well, TAPS is always vigilant for for news of this sort yes. and reaches out proactively to comfort families and uh, recognize that this will be difficult, that, you know, they, above all else, want their loved one's death to have meaning yes. and uh, just as their life had meaning and purpose. Well, Bonnie Carroll, how is the man who conferred upon you the Medal of Freedom, President Obama, I call him the bereaver-in-chief, how is he doing, uh, how, who's been seemingly on a perpetual itinerary toward gatherings marking many high-profile traumatic deaths? How is he doing? Well, he and his wife have been very proactive with the military. They really have. Uh, Michelle Obama created uh, Joining Forces, uh, an, an entity that brings together all military family programs, and she uh, had a special emphasis on caregiver programs in particular. But uh, they, have, they have been tremendous in embracing the military and engaging in efforts that are of concern to military families. When you mean uh, talk about caregiver programs, this is, these are loved ones or these are uh, caregivers in a professional capacity or all of the above? These are actually the caregivers of our wounded warriors. Okay. So yes. the and healthcare that's a, professionals. That's a very tough, tough situation. And they need it, too. They get involved, they get bonded, and they, they grieve, too. Yes, and TAPS actually created a, a, a program, the Military Veterans Caregiver Network, to provide emotional support for all those who are now long-term caregivers to their oh. wounded warrior. Oh, that's remarkable. I'm glad that you could bring that aspect up, too. Well, Bonnie Carroll, would you like to talk about some ongoing ventures at TAPS? I know right now in Milwaukee, as we speak, and for a few more days, the TAPS Women's Retreat is happening. Any, would you like to say something about that or some other oh, adventure you know, workshops? I would love to. We have uh, gatherings all over America for the families of our fallen heroes. We bring families together at regional events. Uh, we have big ones coming up at Fort Hood, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Sacramento, California. We've got retreats that are happening as well, and those bring together, as the, as the one in Milwaukee is bringing widows together. Some are for siblings. Some will be for men only or, or women only or brothers and sisters, and uh, we do about 149 events a year. So lots of opportunity for the, these 60,000 family members to come together and find hope and connection and resources. It's just wonderful. And this intervention is everything when it c comes to reversing 
a synchronicity of a, a downward type reversing that to help those survivors away from post-traumatic stress from the traumatic death that they survived of their loved one in the military. Absolutely, and to remember the life lived in service to this great country. Well, I as I close, I'd like to thank you, Bonnie Carroll, for your time when a balm from so much violence was needed, especially for those who've lost a loved one. Bonnie Carroll, thank you for being on the program today. Well, thank you so much. Well, that was Bonnie Carroll, TAPS president and founder and 2015 Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. We'll be right back after a short station break with Neil Kelly, the Orange County Registrar of Voters. show. Thanks for staying with us all. My next guest is Orange County Registrar Voters, Neil Kelly, here to address some of the complexities and the havoc over California's June 7 primary. His Orange County Registrar Voters is serving more than 1.6 million registered voters, count those. He's held this post for closing in on about 15 years, I'm figuring. Uh, prior to joining Orange County, Neil Kelly established several of his own companies, employing hundreds of people. He was also an adjunct professor with Riverside Community College's Business Administration Department and served as a police officer in Southern California during the mid-1980s. Neil Kelly is an appointed member of the United States Election Assistance Commission Board of Advisors and the Election Assistance Commission Voting System Standards Board serves also as the elected president of the California Association of Clerks and Election Officials, which gives him an extra mantle from which to speak today. He was also the immediate past president for the National Association of County Recorders, Election Officials and Clerks, and he's earned his Bachelor of Science in Business and Management from the University of Redlands and an MBA from the University of Southern California. Welcome back to the show, Neil Kelly. Thank you, Claudia. Well, the official tabulation recently certified by the Secretary of State, that's 48% registered voters turned out. The turnout for Orange County was a shade better, just under 50%. That's 691,000 plus uh, out of uh, 400,000 voters. How does this compare with previous primaries and, of course, previous general elections? Yeah, you know, I actually uh, was was fairly pleased with the turnout. I for I don't know several weeks before the election, maybe a month out, every indicator that I had was kind of pointing us in the direction of the 2008 primary turnout. And sure enough, we were almost hit the nail exactly on the head with with that turnout. Uh, for instance, in 2012, the primary turnout for the presidential primary was 26 and a half percent, so it was fairly low. That was a you know. A different set of circumstances, certainly, than we saw a few weeks ago. But then when you go back to that contested primary in 2008, uh, we had we had turnout almost identical to what we had on June 7th. It's it, You can't really compare them to general elections so much because no, they're just such a different beast, as you know. Right. And uh, general elections in the presidential cycle, you know, we expect to see 68 to 74 uh, percent on a kind of an average range turnout. So I think it's going to be very busy in November as well. Um, but, you know, some people may say, well, only half of, of the electorate turned out. But in an urban county for a presidential primary, it's pretty good. Well, wait a minute. I'm, we're gonna, I'm going to split a hair with you, though. Sure. It's half of the registered voters. The electorate is a larger number. Right. And I, I'm sorry. I should I should clarify registered voters. You're correct. Um, half of the registered voters turned out. Of course, we want everybody participating, but but we can't do that. So, Neil Kelly, do you actually... I mean, just between you and me, nobody's listening right this second. Sure. Do you set your own kind of goal for what, what percentage you're hitting? Yeah, that's a good question. I, we're always planning internally for 100% turnout uh, because, you know, that, that's what we need to do. However, uh, realistically, when we're, when we're gearing up and preparing ballots for backup and we're preparing supplies, we're targeting about a 75% turnout. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we have our goals internally for planning purposes, but from the standpoint of turnout, you know, the election officials really don't have much of a much of a say in that. For instance, you know, it's really what's on the ballot, it's the candidates, it's what the parties are doing. That really is the driver of turnout. Well, let's um, go to, uh, I was sort of curious, since we are in the middle of the first of two political conventions, uh, do you see a little bump? Is there a convention bump in registration? There is. Yes, we do see that. If you go back to the and I won't say the conventions. Let me just use the example of all of the debates leading up to to the primaries. Okay, for that. Uh, almost after every debate, you could see spikes and activity, transactions taking place right after the next day. And what's great about monitoring that data is you can kind of <laughs> you could really kind of see the, the direction people are going, whether they're leaving a certain party or whether they're you know moving over to the North Party preference. Um, wow. During the conventions, we do see registration increases, but it's not so much party changes, which is what we see prior to the primaries. So uh, the answer to your question is yes. So I guess uh, since we know that political operatives are mining data wherever they can, do the, so are they swooping in on uh, – I guess you can't tell. If, are they, they can get all this online. They can see when it's happening. Yeah, they- you're right. They can get it online. Of course, the, the consultants and you know large campaigns are buying the data from us on a daily basis because they're getting more, more complex and rich data than they can get online. But yeah, you bet they're they're definitely in the weeds on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I for the sake of our Orange County Treasury, I hope you're charging them plenty. <laughs> we definitely cost recovery is what we do. <laughs> All right. Well, let's have you talk about the factors that complicated this recent primary's ballot counting. Yes. So uh, they're attributable to every conceivable kind in every conceivable sort of domain. So why don't you tell us which ones come to your mind first as maybe the more confounding ones? Well, I mean, the one that, that was front and center through the entire process for me and yes. certainly for my colleagues up and down the state was the issue of no party preference voters and, you know, what their options are as voters in a presidential primary, not a gubernatorial primary, but a presidential. And, you know, w- this really was the perfect storm because we have not seen, uh, you know, presidential level contests being contested in California since the 1960s. And so you just had this perfect storm of of a candidate who was targeting no party preference voters. And and then you have all of the rules that surround that for voters and how they can participate or not participate makes it very confusing. I mean, you know, the primary elections are for the parties. And and I just that needs to be made clear. I don't I don't think that you know, the majority of voters really understand those rules because they are very complex. They are. You know, and you, and the thing is, is you had so many new voters for the June primary in California that they were brand new to the process. And, you know, just, just for one example, they don't know that they have to go to their home precinct. Right. You know, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It would make sense to me if I were a new voter. Right. And so then you create these provisional ballots, and then they don't understand, you know, what parties are allowing it versus not allowing it to vote for a contest. So, you know, I don't blame poll workers or voters for being frustrated with, with all the rules because I agree, they're complex. Well, and the rules are not the same between two parties. So the Democrats right. had a, a certain accessibility. Non-party declared voter could ask for a Democratic ballot, but the Republicans, the ones wishing to vote for the among the Republican presidential candidates had to have worked this out a couple of weeks prior. You're right. They, they did have to do that. And just imagine you go into oh. your polling place on Election Day. You're a no-party preference voter. You don't understand the rules or get them because the majority don't. And you say, hey, I'd like to vote a Republican ballot. And you're told, no, you can't do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd be frustrated, too. Right. And so then you're left with voting a provisional ballot. Um, but the thing is, is the presidential contest in that case wasn't going to count. So it, it's just it, it, it's become we have made elections so complex. And this is a process that has evolved over 100 plus years in California with regulations and laws that it just becomes cumbersome. Like a simple tax uh, kind of a, you know, 
simple tax accounting, some kind of more simplified election, but it will always be, it'll only snowball in complications with, with negotiations between the involved political parties, parties Correct. with a little p and, and, and with a big p, I guess. Yep. So the so you speak about the provisional ballots. They doubled on you this year. I think you went from 30,000 to 60,000 provisional right. ballots. And so, uh, and complicating that, well, 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 first we'll talk about the provisional ballots, and then we'll talk about the deadline for accepting absentee ballots. So first of the provisional ballots. Tell us about the complexities that these particular ballots pose, the time and the care that have to be taken. You know, our, our friends and neighbors to the north in Los Angeles County had almost 260,000 provisionals cast. And wow. when you look at California across the board, provisionals almost doubled in every county. Okay. The, the reason that that was is just what I was describing earlier, and that is people going to the polling place thinking they could vote one way. Right. And, and not being able to vote out, out of their party and uh, having to vote a provisional ballot. And a provisional ballot, just for your listeners to, to understand, is, is any ballot or any voter's eligibility that cannot be determined in the polling place, that's the safety net for them. Right. right. So if, if, if they're legitimately an eligible voter, you don't want to turn them away. You want to give them that opportunity to vote. Well, provisional ballots, uh, we collect a lot of information on that envelope to be able to determine the voter's identity. And all of that work is done after Election Day. So in California, you have 30 days in order to do all that work. And the complexity of that is, is that a provisional ballot can take anywhere from two to five minutes to process on average, up to 30 minutes for more complex research for a single ballot for a single voter. And if you add, do the math and you take 60,000 and, and do the work on that, it, it, it adds a lot of time to the process. The other piece of that is, is that there's a lot of... You know, here's the problem with social media. I think there's certainly pluses and minuses of social okay. media. Okay. If you throw information out there that's absolutely minus the facts, then it causes confusion for people. And a lot of what we saw up and down the state was nobody counts provisional ballots. Well, that's the opposite of the truth. In fact, in Orange County, 82-plus percent of the provisionals that were cast were counted. So uh, it, it, that that's part of the frustration as well. What I thought was great was we had some really good observers that came in and watched the process and and you know even commented to me saying it's the opposite of what we're reading. And I said, yeah, that that's part of the problem. <laughs> you know, when you're just relying on social media. So. Well, the um, then what is the status uh, of the measure under consideration in the California legislature, which would enable same-day voting, similar to the California, the Colorado system? Yeah, so you're referring to vote centers, and what that would do, and by the way, the bill is SB 450. Uh, that bill recently made it out of the Assembly Committee, and I think it'll be headed to a floor vote here by mid-August. Um, Th there's been a year and a half worth of negotiation behind that bill. A lot of work has been in, has been put in by multiple parties. And what that would do is it would take, forgive this analogy, but it would take the one-day sale, right? Okay. Where we say on Election Day, everybody go out on a single day and vote, which just doesn't make sense. No. Uh, and it would take it and stretch it out to a 10-day period. So you would have 10 days to go to large customer service centers around the county, and be able to go in and get a replacement ballot, or you can vote at any one of those sites. You don't have to go to your home precinct. Uh, it essentially removes the, the need for a provisional ballot. Uh, Colorado's seen their provisional ballots go down by, by 90%. Wow. And so there's so many pluses to that. And, and But by the way, from an economic standpoint, you, you yes. have a reduction in the cost for equipment. There's just a lot of pluses to that. So I think the status is good. Um, you know, it's made it out of both committees uh, up, up in Sacramento and, and headed to a vote, I think, in mid-August. So as a public official and a clerk and election official, are you able to uh, pitch any more than you just did, SB 450? <laughs> It's a fine line that I walk. Yeah. I'll tell you this, as my, my role in the association um, is, is where I'm pitching that. Um, you know, our board in Orange County has not taken a position on that. It would be inappropriate for me to say I'm advocating on behalf of Orange County. But just from, from the standpoint of leadership in, in our election uh, association, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Well, the cost savings is a way to keep bringing that up. Correct. I, I, 
not under, but above the breath, as it were. Well, if you've uh, just tuned in to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, deconstructing the recent California primary on June 7th, getting ready for the general election. That is 11, that's November 8th. I want everybody to write down November 8th. And would the SB 450, that would not take place, though, in uh, this particular election cycle, correct? Correct. Good point. It would not become a law or in effect until 2018. And at that time, if the governor signs it, then there would only be 13 counties that would participate in that in 2018. Well, besides the provisional voting difficulties, there, it's really important that people know how to confirm their own registration. And I, I had a very seasoned voter consult with me about how she wanted to make sure she was, uh, maybe she changed political parties or something, but she, she needed the confirmation. And I, I, I'm happy to say, folks, the, the frequently asked questions on the OC Vote website are very helpful in uh, answering those questions. But it's a, it's a very a user-friendly website to find out all of these questions uh, to get the answers to this kind of thing. But it, but it's. I'm thinking though, if reasonably seasoned voters are having difficulties, it portends a lot of um, hang-ups, uh, problems with not only people getting to the polling place and starting voting, but also voting all the way down the ballot. Doesn't right. it not? It does. And and let me say something to you, Claudia. I don't know. This may or may not resonate with you, but. You know, 40, roughly 2% of all of the registered voters in Orange County only vote every four years. Yes. When you're doing something once every four years, you have to reorient yourself with it. And, you know, if you think about something you do on a daily basis or a weekly basis, you know, you you kind of figure out and navigate it how it should work. And even the most simple uh, items is much easier that way. But, again, when you have new voters or you have people that are accessing it only once every few years, you have to take some time to figure out how to do it. It is very easy, though, you know. And I thank you for making those comments on the website. I mean, you can go on our website to any location, any page. Just hover over the top, and there'll be a drop-down where you can enter your your information, and you can get all of the data on you as a voter, your history of voting, whether your ballot's been returned, your registration. You know, all of that data is there for you to, to access. And I just want to say the history of voting. I did check it out because it was it answered one of my questions: is how do I know my vote was counted? And right. That's the history of voting will confirm that. But I'm I'm here to just set up that folks. It's a real status symbol to see a long list where that history of voting is. That's for sure. If, I mean, if, <laughs> if you live in one place long enough, I guess that has to happen too. Yeah. So um, we're we're looking here at um, when we look at that confirmation though, without a. a Driver's license number, what else can someone use? Well, you know, we, we've tied that to your registration lookup because we need to make sure it's tied to your record. And, of course, we don't want anybody just accessing your record. So we nope. do have those protections in place. Uh, but you could call our office, uh, and, and you wouldn't have to key in that information. And, and one of our operators would be happy to help you. I'm thinking there's a public that doesn't have a driver's license anymore, sure. and they wanted, they either had difficulties. I mean, sort of the... Uh, Oh, but let me let me just add. I'm sorry. That's a good point because you you would, could enter the last four of your social security as well. Okay. Well, then most people still have that around to get access yep. to various services. That so, what adjustments are you making uh, going into the general election? We'll talk about the primary in a little bit, but the general is the one that's coming up there. Uh, more training for the Orange County poll workers that are admittedly our volunteers. They're they're so good to give their time. They they get nothing but. They get nothing but, I don't know, anecdotes and grief. <laughs> our poll workers are fantastic. I, every time I encounter one of our poll workers, it's a good experience because you're right. They're dedicated volunteers in the community. And you think about a grumpy voter that might go to a polling place and has had a bad day. They take it out on our volunteers, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I'll tell you what, they're resilient, and they're, they're a great group of individuals. And I, I will say this. Certainly, we're, the, the training will be modified for November, but what's fantastic about November is that we're not going to have all of these complex primary party rules. Those will be gone. Yes. Because when you hit that general election in November, it's wide open. You can vote for anybody on the ballot that you want. Only there's less, a lot of less candidates because of that other California proposition that uh, 
that was successful that winnowed all of the state and federal state election um, campaigns that uh, weeded out the top two vote getters to advance so we don't have extra parties not showing up on that tick, uh, the last ballot. Correct. So what you end up having is a runoff, essentially, for almost all of the contests. For almost That's all right. of them. But, and, but in California, if a primary candidate is successful in getting any major supermajority, do they have, do they have, do they win that election outright? Well, it, on, on certain contests, that's correct. So, for instance, on county races, on, on the Board of Supervisors, as an example, if, if you get 50 plus 1 percent in the primary, you've won. You don't have to advance to the general. But that's not the case in the statewide. No, no. In the statewide, even if there's one person on the ballot in the primary, they're going to advance to the general. Okay. All right. So I'm, this begs the question, what state and local funding do you envision will be available to the Orange County Register? star voters to prepare for future elections, general well, you, or primary? Yeah, I'll tell you, we have been in the planning stages now for over four years for replacing our voting system and preparing for what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, and I say the future, which is coming up quick. It's 2018. Uh, so we've been planning from a financial standpoint. The board has been very supportive in, in setting aside funds so that we're we're not caught off guard and we're prepared and, and, and ready for 2018. Because the federal funding that was there in 2003 or 2002 is gone. The state has not committed any funding for election systems or well. replacements. And so we've got to be prepared. And, um, you know, so we are ready as we head into 2018 for, for what we need to do. Well, already there are 17 measures, that is statewide measures, they're cleared for the general election ballot, and there's still a few more that could qualify. When is the deadline for these measures to be submitted to the Secretary of State? Well, that was June 30th, I mean, for having the signatures checked. So we'll end up with 17 state props on the ballot, but the the deadline for local measures is August 12th. Okay. So here's the thing. You know, I, I already know some cities that are, that are going to have eight to ten measures on the ballot. Now, you're going to have 17 state props. You're going to have eight to ten local measures, and then you have all the candidates that will be on there. We're going to have a long ballot in November, certainly in some communities. So that is a complication for a county registrar voters administrator. It is. It's going to lengthen the line. So there's all sorts of ways you try to prepare, and, and you were on my show going into the primary the month before, mm-hmm. and you, you did everything you could to let people know about the rules that were in different races uh, going on, but what are you preparing in the public education campaign to prepare people for a very long-winded, and I mean that winded meaning, lots of propositions in the, going into the general election 11-8? You know, we redesigned our sample ballots, first major redesign in decades that we launched in the primary. We had a tremendous amount of positive feedback from voters on that. And so preparing voters, our ability to communicate with the voters and to prepare them for Election Day is really, really comes down to that sample ballot because that is a piece of mail that hits every voter's household. Uh, every voter's door. And so our preparation for that is to make sure that the communication in that sample ballot is clear, that, you know, anything that they need to be aware of prior to Election Day is is very simple to read up front in plain language. All of that preparation is taking place now as we head towards the end of September when we'll start mailing those. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, you know, if we're trying to do outreach communication or things that are beyond that direct mail piece, which we do, you know, we're going to be at 40-plus events between now and November, you can't hit every voter. And the best way to communicate with that voter is through that sample ballot. So there's the county fairs. Do you have a booth there? We do. We're going okay. to be at the county fair. All uh, in the fact, time. we, for the first time, we've, we've worked very hard with the fair to negotiate right up in front of that main gate. Uh, you'll see our trailer in several days out there. With with eye candy workers to make sure everybody pulls <laughs> there. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, whatever it's going to take, folks, it's it's all about that turnout. That you and I, we just we just drool when we talk about the upper percentages of turnout. That's what we do that every time we talk. I, at least I do. I'm glad you're a champion of that. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to tell you there are other public affairs hosts on this, that even the ones that are doing the irreverent uh, commentary, that all, all of us are trying our best to, to bring it up. So uh, a head start on 
planning registration, folks. Um, the deadline, no, I have this right, Neil, it's, uh, is it October 24th? October 24th at midnight. At midnight. So, and, and you can do it online now. The, that original, that so-called wet signature isn't as essential as it once was. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So there is no reason why eligible voters cannot register and be a part of this. And I don't know, I mean, do you ever... Do you ever talk about the or get that glow of have somebody having just voted and oh, voting? Yeah. On, so somehow to bring that glow to social media and, and sort of move over some of the the din of misinformation to give people that impression that what what a feeling that comes over. And, and you know, I just want to tell you real quick. I've had people in our lobby that I've encountered that are new citizens yes. and were just in tears casting their first ballot because it was so meaningful. They came from countries that did not have uh, democracies like we enjoy here in this, in this great country. And it, it just, you know, is overwhelming to them. So yeah, absolutely, we see that quite a bit. Well, I want to thank you so much, Neil Kelly. You're a busy man, as we're hearing all the, the measures you're going through. And it, I guess your, your work responsibilities, they're sort of a, a slope that just gets steeper the closer you get to the summit, <laughs> I guess. And you probably have a few fall summits. You think you're you're almost there, but no, there's more work. There's a recount or there's something going That's on. Right. So I really thank you for being on the show to tell us tell us what was uh, going to be, what you're resolving with the complexities and uh, keep, keep everything honest and keep everybody participating. Thanks Great. for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. That was Neil Kelly the Orange County Registrar of Voters, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm just going to get us started here with a little sound we've got to have here. So in closing, as an unreal convergence assembles at the GOP pageant, Cleveland is armed to the teeth given Ohio's open carry law. I quote from yesterday's Los Angeles Times, the city's banned a wide variety of potential weapons from the protest zone near the convention including tennis balls, water pistols, and bicycle locks, but cannot ban firearms, end of quote. May the very coolest heads prevail. Oh, but wait. Cool, perhaps hypocritical heads are prevailing. The Republican convention itself is a gun-free zone for their protection. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, another full roster for you. I'm having on UCI professor from the School of Information and Computer Sciences, Gloria Mark, whose research has been validating what many of us already suspected, that multitasking is overrated. Then we'll feast on the wordsmith prowess of Ali Etaraz as we talk about his newly released debut novel, Native Believer. I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.